This is a throwdown, a showdown. Hell no, Rob Fay Nation can't slow down. It's gonna go. What is going on? I'm Rob Fay. Welcome to your Tuesday edition of Sports Bar Radio. It is the 28th day of September, smack in the afternoon. You've got 30 minutes of sports coming your way. We are going to get into a boatload of stuff, as I say, every single opportunity you and I get together. Uh, we will talk about the NHL. We're going to dip into the ways that you can blow a hamstring at the most inconvenient of times and so much more. We're going to talk about the Blue Jays and all kinds of stuff here as we get you caught up in every possible way so that when you go to the water cooler, be it later this afternoon or tomorrow morning, you are the most informed as you pour that agua. But let me get you to that one story, that one thing that just uh, irks me today. Let me get you to the lead. We've scoured the globe for the stories that matter to you. Okay, well, let's be honest, Rob picks most of the stories, so maybe they matter more to him? Anyways, pull up a chair and let our bartender pour you a cold one because there's a lot going on in your world today. All right, so this is a tough one for me, and yet it's a really easy one for me because in my previous incarnation as a communications guy and a broadcaster, I understand both sides of the need here. So let's talk about what happened yesterday when Jim Benning, talking to Ben Kuzma of the province, came out and basically said, hey man, leave Travis Hamannick alone. It's a personal situation. He's trying to figure things out on his own. And uh, we'll let you know. Like, just give us some time here and respect that man's privacy. So that is essentially where the fence post is. On one side, you have the media and those who want to be in the know who are like, no, 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 no. We are absolutely going to track this guy down. For example, Rick Dollywall this morning on his show with Don Taylor came out and said, listen, this isn't Carolina, this isn't Columbus, this is a Canadian market, and we are going to go after those stories. That is a quote. Then you have the other side that is like, listen guys, this is a personal decision, we've been through a lot, give this guy his space, give this guy his time, and we'll all figure it out in the wash. There is no right answer here. Because from the organization, they're absolutely going to do everything that they can to protect Travis Hamannick. Even if it does have to do with a decision that could affect their team. Not just from a salary cap, but from an actual health perspective. The fact is, if Travis Hamannick is choosing to not get vaccinated, that is a choice that he has to make for his family. But it is also a choice that affects the Vancouver Canucks on the ice. So, again, here's the problem that you face in situations like this. It is a newsworthy story, but the fact is the organization doesn't come out with a formal statement, or did they? And it just happened to come in the form of Jim Benning doing an impromptu interview with Ben Kuzma. That to me is the statement. Not everything has to be on letterhead. Not everything has to be signed off by Francesco. Sometimes your general manager can just go into the media. If he wants to talk to one as opposed to the general masses, he's entitled to do that. But the message from the organization is now out there. Back off. Now, we can, as fans and as media, sit around and talk about what that would do for the salary cap and what that would mean to the Vancouver Canucks defensive pairings and how that would affect the wins and losses. And you are completely, 100% allowed to do exactly that. But if Travis Hamannick is choosing not to get vaccinated, 
as much as we look at him as a hockey player, as an asset, as a hit to the cap, it is still his personal decision to make. The organization in those matters don't have to come forward. They don't. There is no news there because nothing is official. Nothing has actually happened. Everything right now is still a ball up in the air because he hasn't decided if he's going to retire. He hasn't decided if he's going to get vaccinated or not get vaccinated, and he hasn't made that decision. So there's no news. There's no reason to go out and get the letterhead and get Francesco to sign off on it or maybe set up the podium and have a press conference. None of it is needed because no decision has been made. And while they're trying to make this decision, back away. Which to me is a completely fair request. Like we talk about Vancouver being a Canadian market and a hot news market and we talk about all these guys that are insiders and who have the sources and who have the connections and you know what, cool, congratulations. But when an organization steps forward and says, listen man, we could use your help by backing off and let this individual make a personal decision, I'm good with it. Now I'll tell you why I'm good with it because as a guy that was a communications director for a sports team in Vancouver, I would have been fired if I just rolled out random press releases with updates on personal situations. You don't do that as an organization. Like the organization does not have any news to report. There is no finality. There is no need for them to step to the mic and say anything right now. It's a matter that is being taken in within the organization and that's it. And when there is news, you'll know. And the reason that Jim Benny, the general manager, comes out and says, everybody take a knee here for a second, is because you know that that is an important situation. That the domino surrounding that decision could affect Elias Pettersson, and could affect Quinn Hughes, and could affect Travis Green and his defensive pairings and the depth that they have on the blue line. I mean, there are so many things that are in the air as a result of this decision that the last thing that they need right now is to have some media beating down the door or calling the agents or stepping to the forefront with all this speculation when they don't have the news that muddies the water. I love the media. I love what they stand for. I love what they represent. But if you think that this is news beyond what it could mean, then I think it's a little too TMZ-ish for me. I am cool waiting to hear his decision on his time at whatever time he feels is ready for this organization. Sorry, I guess I do that because I look at Travis Hamannick for more than just a jersey. I look at him as a person that probably has a couple of battles that he's fighting internally. Like, yeah, I don't think Travis Hamannick strikes me as the kind of guy that proactively wants to hurt his teammates or hurt an organization. But if he has a moral standard, and right now the moral standard doesn't go against the general consensus, which is everybody should get vaccinated, I hate to say it, it's still his choice. And it is his choice, and if he chooses not to get vaccinated, and then all of a sudden is not a part of this team, well, you know what? Yeah, it affects him, and it affects the organization, but it is still his choice, whether we accept it or not. Is that selfish? Depends on which lens you're looking through. But I really, in my heart of hearts, believe that this is his choice to make. The organization doesn't have to say anything, and if the media wants to go out there and, quote, break a story, then you know what? You're cutting your nose off to spite your face. And don't hide behind the cloak of this being a Canadian market, therefore we get to press buttons that other cities don't take on. Do you really want to be the paparazzi? Do you really want to be the guy that's banging on the doors or asking friends of the friends of the friends to make sure that you can get that story first when it's such a personal decision and you assume that it is the vaccination? 
You assume that. And yet you yell at the Vancouver Canucks organization because they haven't come out and put it on a silver platter for you to make your job easier so you can push your story and your narrative forward. Reporting is getting the facts straight and making sure when you open your mouth or type your words that they are accurate. That is it. You want to be a speculator? You want to be a guy that breaks stories and maybe throws mud at the wall and sees what sticks? I don't know, man. It's just not where I'd want to sign up. But getting mad at organizations because they don't rule things out on your timeline, it's not what it's about. All right, let's get to the rest of the stuff. We got a lot of sports we're going to cover in a short period of time. I usually jam it and need a couple of buddies to help me close the door because there is so much that we still have to get to. Let us get you into all of the news of the day. Let me get you into the VIP room. You knew tonight was going to be a good night, didn't you? Guys, the ladies don't want you wasting their time, so get to the point. 10 topics, 10 minutes. Hold on to your drinks because we're about to bring you the entire world of sports before the DJ can pull out the vinyl for his next set. Welcome to the VIP room. All right, so Toronto Blue Jays, in just a few minutes' time, are going to take on the New York Yankees for the first of three games, which basically dictates their season. If they can take two or three from the Yankees, I would say that it puts them in the proverbial driver's seat, but I think they're going to need all 162 to figure out if they're going to be in or out. I don't know that, but again, I, I know if they lose against the Yankees in this three-game series that it is going to be very hard to get into the postseason. So, a lot of people are talking about how we got here, and it's the emergence of Robbie Ray from a, a, a guy that had scuffled a little bit and just needed somebody to truly take a chance on him, which the Blue Jays did. Pete Walker's turned him into a guy that's going to get plenty of Cy Young voting. I don't know if it's enough to get past Garrett Cole, but he is definitely in the conversation. That's probably one of the best surprises of the entire season. You could also say that Steven Matz is a surprise, a guy that was an injury guy with the New York Mets. Blue Jays took a chance on him and, again, got a pretty good return on investment. But the one guy that I think is the biggest, best surprise of them all, and I don't think this is a big surprise to anybody, is the emergence, the immediate emergence of Alec Manoa. Manoa, just a couple of years ago, was playing in Vancouver. He never played double-A. He never played triple-A. He went straight to the bright lights of the major leagues. And this, to me, is probably Mark Shapiro and Ross Atkins' greatest move. It was the move that they didn't make. And I went on my radio show a couple of years ago, well, I want to say a couple of years ago now, and talked about a trade offer that was made to the Cleveland Indians for Francisco Lindor. Remember Lindor, the Indians, when they were shopping around trying to find who would be the best suitor so they could get something of value in exchange for the bonafide generational infielder? The offer that was made to Cleveland, from what I had heard, included Alec Manoa. Because shortly after the Blue Jays took Alec Manoa and sent him to Vancouver and he was playing in just a handful of games with the Canadians, he was not a guy that was 100% in shape. And I think there were a lot of people that when they finally put eyes on Alec Manoa and his body mass and his body makeup weren't big fans. Manoa himself will tell you that he was probably a little soft in certain sections where he shouldn't have been. The midsection, the chest, he needed to physically become a man even though he had the body, the bones of a man. So the Blue Jays, after just a couple of games of the minor leagues, added his name, a first rounder, to the deal to try and get a generational player that they didn't end up getting in Francisco Lindor. He ends up with the Mets and Bob's your uncle. So then COVID hits, 
and everybody goes their separate way. So Manoa didn't have a chance to pitch in double-A AA or triple-A. He ended up pitching with his brother basically out front of their house or at local diamonds and fields. And all of a sudden, the season resumes, and Manoa is a part of the conversation. What are we going to do with Alec Manoa? Well, you know what? He turned heads right out of the gates and ends up getting the call up to the Toronto Blue Jays. Now we start talking. Now we start talking about what is he going to be? Is he going to be a closer? Is he going to end up being like a Joba Chamberlain? That was the immediate comparison when first people took a look at Alec Manoa, that he had that kind of a makeup, a big, tall, kind of roundly figure who could just throw the absolute piss out of a baseball. But he was a pitcher. I knew that he was more than a strikeout per inning guy, but I didn't know he was going to be that this fast. Like, what is he, 8-2 and two with an ERA in the low threes, high twos? I mean, it is unbelievable to think of what Alec Manoa has meant to this team. So you think of all of the surprises this year, from Manoa to Robbie Ray to Steven Matz and the consistency of Hinjin Ryu. This might be, and we talk about Charlie Montoyo and the managing and who should be the manager, this might be Pete Walker's finest hour. Because Pete Walker, the pitching coach for the Toronto Blue Jays, has had lots to work with, and he has gotten every ounce of it. You always hear about guys who underachieve, guys that aren't living up to expectations or aren't getting the most out of their pitching staff. I would like to say this year, you got to tip your cap to a guy like Pete Walker, who, when the injury bug was prominent with the Toronto Blue Jays, if Pete Walker wasn't at fault. Because they did have to turn around some things within their training and their development. Certain things weren't going well and they needed to make the adjustment. Some trainers left on their own accord, some didn't make the cut. But I think what they've got right now is a recipe for success. And that has gotten rave reviews from a lot of people around the league who are saying that Toronto has one of the best staffs in the American League. Oh, I know they don't have a bona fide star, which is saying something considering they've got a Hyunjun Ryu. Considering they've got a Jose Barrios, who even though inconsistent, I still think with a full season in Toronto could be exactly what they bargained for. And then you've got the bright future of Alec Manoa. And this is before you get into Nate Pearson, before you get into the emergence of a couple of pitchers that aren't that far away. And the Toronto Blue Jays look pretty darn good, don't they? I think this is one of those things where if they make the playoffs, it'll be great because everybody's going to get at least a little bit of experience. I still say if they can get into the postseason, there's nobody in the American League that I'm scared of. I'm not scared of the White Sox. I'm not scared of the Astros or any of it. Rays, you name them. Could Toronto catch lightning in a bottle? Yeah, but I'll tell you this. If I'm an opposing team, I don't want to play Toronto because even with this pitching staff that I think is pretty doggone good, then you get to the offense, and the offense speaks for itself. One quick story, because a lot of people are also saying Manoa, who, by the way, is older than Vladimir Guerrero Jr. One of the things that they say is they like his makeup, that he is very mature for his age. And even though he does some goofy stuff, which most baseball players do when they first break into the bright lights of the major leagues, that he's got a good head on his shoulders. There was a situation... I would say right near the end of the season. And I goofed with all the players. Some of the players liked me. Some of the players didn't. Some of the players thought I used too many of the stars and not enough diversification over just everybody getting their time in front of the camera. You'll never please 40 baseball players over the course of a season. 
But one of the things that I learned about Alec Manoa early on is he never said no to an interview, that he knew immediately what his role was, what his responsibility was, and he spoke well and he spoke direct. And there's so many stories that I could tell you about Alec Manoa, but I'm going to tell you one that maybe doesn't even shine that well on me, but it speaks to the character of Alec Manoa. So we're in the clubhouse one day, and we're just all joking around, and I, you got to remember, I could probably be the father to most of these guys if you just went strictly on age, because I'm in my mid-40s, most of these guys are in their uh, you know late teens, early 20s, and there's a, a definite gap between the two eras. So when I come in, I would like to think that most of the people are listening, and me and Alec would go back and forth. He and Adam Kloffenstein were thick as thieves. They were two good friends, and uh, they were competitive with each other. Oh, my God, were they competitive. But you knew that uh, it was a good relationship. So anyways, one day we're in there, and I'm goofing around with Alec, and I'm getting on him about something. And I can't even remember what it was. It was like me and him were going back and forth on a card game about something, and all of a sudden I started, you know, taking shots at him. And I'm just like, hey, man, like, come on, you got to pay hey, don't be that guy. He just all of a sudden stood up straight and he says, hey, man, like he put me in my place in front of the entire team. Now, that had never happened. And that is not because I, I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that I don't go into the Canadians locker room and act the fool like I was always on the page with, you know, majority of the players. But it was really surprising. And again, it was all good. There was never any tension or anything like that. But just to have somebody say, hey, man, that's not how it was. This is how it is. And I don't want to hear it. I tell you the call that I made. True story. I called John Schneider, who was uh, at the time just, I think he was just about to become the major league coach or had just become the major league coach. I can't remember which one it was. But me and him have, have got a great friendship. And I said, man. You are going to love Alec Manoa. And a lot of people, a lot of communications guys might have had their backup that somebody would have talked as directly as he did to me. I loved it because I was all about character and I just love seeing guys that don't take shit and guys that can understand what it's like to be a pro but also stand their ground as well. And I just knew that he was going to be just fine. And what makes that story interesting is it wasn't all about swagger. Like, he wasn't arrogant. You see how he acted with his housing family, his his housing mother, Usha, who's a good friend of mine as well. Um, if, if I can just stretch this out for a minute or two more. So Usha, who's a very good friend of me, very good friend of the Canadians organization, she had uh, lost her son just a couple of years earlier. And I'll never forget this because when the Vancouver Canadians got Alec Manoa, um, immediately the organization starts looking for housing families, like a pairing. Okay, we're going to put this person with this person. They're close to the stadium and da-da-da-da-da. So I looked at Alec Manoa, 6'6", 260, give or take, and uh, just a really big guy. But he kind of looked a little bit like Usha's son. And because I had, I had actually known Usha's son who passed away, he was the bartender at my wedding. Like, I knew him really, really well. I actually said to the organization briefly, I go, you know what, man, I don't know if that's the best situation. And they said, why? Usha's amazing. I said, oh, no, 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 she's amazing, but look at him. And then look at her son. I said, there is a striking similarity between these two. So anyways, uh, the Canadians, it ended up working out really, really well. Usha and uh, Alec hit it off immediately, and he stayed in touch with her all the way through. He would come home, big hug for her. Uh, and I always wondered, like, how would that make her feel having that semblance of closeness to a, a young man who looked a lot like her son and acted a lot like her son. And it ended up uh, helping her greatly. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that Alec picked up on that situation really early 
and um, just treated her like gold. So between that situation and him not backing down to anybody, just standing him ground, you could tell that Alec was raised well. And even though he was given a boatload of money, he signed for what, six, seven million dollars as a signing bonus. Um, you could just tell that there was a man behind that childlike smile. And I thought he was going to do good early on. I didn't think he was going to be eight and two out of the shoot at major leagues. I didn't think his first game would be at Yankee Stadium, but and in the time that it took to get there. But I just look at what the Toronto Blue Jays are as a whole. They're young and they're fresh. You got Vladdy, you got Bo, you got Kevin Biggio, uh, Danny Jansen, and you know you sprinkle in a couple of the guys around that clubhouse as well that have that youthful joy like Lourdes Gurriel, Teoscar. I could see why he would have fit in with this particular organization well. There's not a lot of old KG veterans. There's a lot of youth. There's a lot of vibrance. And uh, I, I can totally understand why he fits in. Uh, the way that he does. And I'll tell you this, if the Blue Jays do make it into the postseason, he will be a part of a rotation, be it a five-game or a seven-game series. So one of the people that listens to this podcast and on a regular basis said, you know, Rob, here's a question for you that I hope at some point you'll get to address on your show. And I feel like today's show isn't necessarily bullet points on all the sports that are going on around the world. Um, I want to talk about Baseball Canada and I want to talk about the secondary organizations in Canada when it comes to national programs. For example, we all know that Hockey Canada is kind of at the top of the proverbial totem pole because of what they get, their funding, uh, just their everybody optically knows that Hockey Canada is one of the best run organizations on the international scale. But Baseball Canada and Basketball Canada and Soccer Canada and Football Canada um, all kind of fight for the scraps. Or at least that was how it was said to me and how could I defend each of these teams' national programs. Now, I won't get into all of them because to be honest with you, I haven't looked into Football Canada that much. And I do know a little bit about Baseball Canada and the struggles that they face. And I was just wondering because we've seen the evolution of what they did. And I think it actually started in Vancouver with the Beyond the Podium, you know, with the Olympic push to try to make sure that every two to four years we were ready to go, be it on the winter stage or the summer game stage. But Baseball Canada in particular is one of these examples of an organization that has just never been able to get over the hump. I mean, I think of Tennis Canada right now, and they must just be riding so high when you think of Bianca Andreescu and Leila Fernandez and all these young, bright stars that just are giving this body a bonafide ability to go out there and find sponsorship and big-time sponsorship so that they can start to develop the next generation because that's essentially what sponsorship is, is you want to make sure that you can fund your coaches, make sure your players can get to these tournaments and things that put them on the world stage, and then hopefully something that you can help cultivate the next generation. Baseball Canada's struggles aren't really well documented, but they're there. And I wonder if baseball, of all the majors right now, are facing the pinch even that much more. You think of the pandemic, you think of the fact, here's a question for you. Where do you assume the home of Baseball Canada is? Like, where's their head office? I'll give you a moment, I'll let you think about that for a second. Their head office is in Ottawa, in a city that is one of the coldest in Canada for four to five months of the year. Now, we'll never be able to compete with, you know, Florida and Texas and Central America. That is just a geographical impossibility. It's a part of the reason that these players need to go south of the border as often as they do, which is why the funding is so important. But Baseball Canada needs a push. 
there's a lot of organizations that need a push, but Baseball Canada in particular is one that I think is going to get affected. Now, Seattle Mariners today are going to call up a youngster from Ontario, Matt Brash, who has been recalled by the Mariners to pitch in one of the biggest weeks of that organization's history in the last, what, decade? I mean, Seattle's got a legitimate shot at the postseason, something that we haven't been able to say for many years. But whether it's a tough showing at the World Baseball Classic, the Olympics where, you know, baseball really needs to find a home, world championships or whatever, we're going to have to look past Joey Votto and Matt Stairs and start looking for the next generation pretty soon. Because the Toronto Blue Jays cannot simply be the lone organization that props them up over the years. Like, you look at the sponsors for Baseball Canada, and aside from the government, which gives them their stipend, you've got the Toronto Blue Jays, Rawlings, RBC Wealth Management, Mizuno, Under Armour, and New Era. But these aren't necessarily big partnerships. They need something that puts them on the national stage. And I said, well, here's what you could do. Why wouldn't you consider moving Baseball Canada to the West Coast? The weather's a little bit better. You could probably find a way to set up a facility where you could work year-round instead of just, you know, south of the border all the time. And you could probably also do good by having your players stay north of the border more often than not. So here's my question to you. Do you think that the national program for baseball should be on the West Coast where players would have the opportunity to train year-round and not worry about what's going on outside as much? I mean, you think of UBC and what they've done to become the best collegiate program in North America. You think of the fact that we've got opportunities across the board. National Baseball Institute was here back in the days. I just think that there is something to be said for setting up baseball on the West Coast. So to the world of MMA, and uh, how about this? John Jones allegedly pulling the hair of his fiance, headbutted a cop car, and was arrested in Las Vegas. Las Vegas Metro PD arresting John Jones at Caesars Palace at about 5 in the morning after a domestic disturbance in a hotel room. Cops would later say in the report that the 34-year-old Jones became, quote, irate and smashed his head onto the front hood of a patrol vehicle which left a medium-sized dent as well as chips in the paint. Jones, amidst a wide range of emotions, said at one point to the cops that he was going to sue the department for handcuffing him on the biggest night of his life. Jones was getting inducted into the hall for his 2013 fight against Alexander Gustafson just hours before this arrest. Uh, police apparently checked in on John and Jesse's hotel room and said that they saw blood on the bed sheets. He was arrested for misdemeanor domestic battery and felony tampering with a vehicle. John Jones has a court date set next month. Well, Tom Brady says he is not expecting a wild homecoming in his return to Foxborough. I think everybody knows that he's going to get a very warm reception. It marks his first trip back to Gillette Stadium since leaving the Patriots in 2020. And yeah, of course, with his one year in Tampa Bay, all he did was go out and win a Super Bowl. But he told ESPN earlier this week, quote, I'm not going to necessarily reminisce. I don't think this is the moment for that. I'll have plenty of opportunities to reminisce about my football career later on. He says, I think this is going to be one night of football, a Sunday night game coming off a really tough loss. And uh, you got to remember, Tom Brady is just a few yards from passing Drew Brees on the all-time passing yards list, which would be a pretty cool thing to do in Foxborough. And finally, I got to tell you this story. Baltimore Ravens assistant coach Drew Wilkins was so excited after Justin Tucker's 66-yard game-winning kick on Sunday that he ended up blowing out his hamstring celebrating. He was, 
He popped his hammy while jumping for joy after the big kick from Tucker. And uh, Harbaugh actually thought it was pretty funny while he announced the injury, saying that the wound was all due to Wilkins' poor gym habits. What a way to go out. And uh, finally, I got to tip my cap to Jalen Smerick, who has, after the, uh, I don't know if you got this one. So playing overseas, a Ukrainian pro hockey player taunted him by basically simulating as if he was peeling a banana. Now, Jalen Smirek is black, and there hasn't been a lot of movement here by the International Ice Hockey Federation or the league itself. So he has decided that he is going to sit out until they remove this player from the league. Andre Deniskin very quickly put out an apology. It didn't read well, but again, there's a bit of a translation issue there, so we'll simply assume that he did this. Uh, one thing he did do is do it quickly, but that apparently not enough, and I agree. If there's no suspension, if there's no removal from the league, then I, I'm totally in Smirik's court. I think this simply has to be put out of the game, and you can't make excuses that maybe some places in the world this is more acceptable than it is. The racism isn't accepted anywhere, and uh, I am definitely hoping that the league and the International Ice Hockey Federation can make some moves here to take away what uh, a lot of people are just saying is simply outrageous. All right, that'll wrap up a very quick Tuesday edition of Sports Bar Radio. My thanks to Jay Swing, producer extraordinaire, and to everybody over at Equity Guru, including Chris Perry. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to do this show today. My thanks to the irreplaceable Priscilla Choi, and I look forward to seeing you tomorrow, or at least talking to you tomorrow, as we bring you another edition of Sports Bar Radio, presented to you, as always, by Equity Guru. Drive safe. I will talk to you just a couple hours from now. Sports Bar Radio was brought to you by Equity Guru, investment information for the new generation. Visit us at equity.guru and let's make some money together. Please note, any mention of companies on this podcast is part of a promotional campaign, and the information you hear should be a part of extensive due diligence. As well, always get advice from an accredited financial advisor before you make any investment decision. Protect yourself. We are just days away from Vancouver's newest wrestling extravaganza as NEW2 is set for the Vancouver Convention Center on both October the 9th and October the 10th. Featuring El Fantasmo and Impact Wrestling's Josh Alexander. Saturday night, we pack the convention center with eight amazing matches featuring some of Canada's most exciting indie wrestlers. Tickets are on sale now at nationextremewrestling.com.